0: Welcome to Chamberlain University's MSN Coursecast. Each episode in our series will introduce and discuss key concepts from the modules in one of your courses. These episodes are intended to enhance your learning when you're on the go, so feel free to listen to them anytime and anywhere.
1: Hello, everybody. Today, I want to welcome you to NR514's podcast number three that addresses end-of-life care and palliative care. And today, we have with us Dr. Mindy Thompson, and I want to allow her to introduce herself. Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for joining us today. And would you mind giving us an introduction?
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, like you said, I'm Dr. Mindy Thompson. I work here at Chamberlain, I've been a nurse for about twenty years, recently became a nurse practitioner and have several years in the home health and hospice settings. So palliative and end of life care is definitely a topic of deep interest and we could I guess we could say expertise. I guess that's the, the role I'm in today. Yes. Yeah, so So yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to our
1: conversation today. Oh, we are so happy you joined us. So what I wanna start with Dr. Thompson is just really kind of getting an understanding of these key terms. So we hear the term palliative care as well as end of life care. And so how do those differ? Well, first off, what do they mean? And really how do they differ?
0: Yeah, these terms are used interchangeably a lot, and they are very different. Although palliative care is part of end-of-life care, they are different. So palliative care is symptom control regardless of a disease state or the ability to cure that disease. Where end-of-life care is the provision of care when a patient chooses to abstain from life-saving or sustaining measures and encompasses that palliative treatment, as well as some holistic considerations as we help patients and their families through that end-of-life continuum.
1: Thank you so much for that. When we are talking about some considerations, when looking at the end-of-life care, what are important factors for the assessment of this and like planning based on patient desires?
0: There's a couple of things to consider
1: here. So, first of
0: all, let's focus for just a minute on the patient desires because really a lot of your plan of care is going to center around that. You need to know what are the patient's wishes, what do they want their death to be like? And that's a question that most of us don't necessarily want to think about ourselves, but we don't really uncomfortable Yeah, we're really uncomfortable to ask somebody else that too. But when you enter into these kind of conversations, those are definitely things you want to know. And it's not a question that you are going to ask somebody two minutes after meeting them. You know, you're going to build your rapport. You're going to develop your relationship. And you're going to have a general conversation that's going to give you those answers. You know, you want to know things like, do they want to be surrounded by all of their family? Is there just one or two key family members that are really, really important to them? they walk by them side some people want to be alone and so and some people don't know and that's totally fine too you also want to know things like do you want to be at home do you want to be in would you rather be in the hospital would you rather be someplace else and then as far as assessment findings you're going to continually assess this person for the progression of the disease process for end of life signs of end of life that it is imminent or where you might be in those stages. So, good knowledge, pathophysiology knowledge of disease processes really guide the assessment and what you're looking for. You want to pick up on things early. And so, a good solid foundation of pathophysiology knowledge will help you see those assessment findings earlier rather than later. That way you can treat that patient, you know, to control the symptoms before the symptoms are out of control.
1: Do you find sometimes, Dr. Thompson, in your experiences in our profession, that we can sometimes make assumptions about what we think they want and and sometimes forget what truly is the patient wishes?
0: Absolutely. You know, one thing I think we're all guilty of from time to time is we do make that assumption based on what we would want, we assume that's what the patient would want too, and that is it's a dangerous spot to put yourself however you may be doing it subconsciously i think a lot of that do do that same process to each other based on our own reference points and our own experiences and what we think we would want without asking what somebody else would want you know we also do this with culture too you know we talk a lot about culture sensitivity and cultural awareness when you walk into the home of someone of a different culture You may have some ideas about what that culture likes and does and prefers and needs and all those things, but you should never make that assumption. So just like with assessment findings, if you have subjective assessment findings, you need some objective data to validate that. So when we have an assumption that we think we know what somebody would want, we need to validate it by asking or some other means of validating that assumption.
1: Such great points. Thank you so much. So going back to some of the conflicts that we may encounter, have you ever had an experience where there was conflict between patient wishes and family thoughts? And so how can those best be addressed?
0: You know, when you are in any situation that there are a lot of emotion, there's going to be conflict. So conflict is... very common in the end-of-life setting but probably the biggest conflict that stands out from my experience and it didn't happen very often thank goodness but we had a family more than once you know they'd want to sign their their loved one up for hospice services but they didn't want them to know they were going to go on hospice services right because they didn't want them to stop fighting they didn't they didn't want that finalization of you know kind of the stereotypical I'm on hospice I'm going to die in two weeks that's not true but that stigma is still out there so that's what the family was afraid of so really that's what it boils down to first we had to educate the family about informed consent <laughs> and the patient has to assign a consent form saying what they're signing up for and they can't sign that consent form legally without knowing what they're signing up for so it was a process of educate, 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 and a little bit of give and take. So the way that one worked out was, fortunately, the company I worked for at that time, hospice was not part of our company name. So we did tell the patient everything that would be done, the services that would be provided, comfort measures. We talked about how you know, they wouldn't be calling the ambulance to go back to the hospital, all these things, but we just did not say the word hospice. So we did grant the family's wish, but we still provided them all the information that they needed to legally sign an informed consent. So there is some give and take at the same time that you are educating as much as you can for that patient family.
1: And so I want to segue into another area, and I know I've encountered this, and I might share my point once I hear your feedback as well. Have you ever had an experience where it's now Looking at the physician perspective and their concerns as well when they're in this conflict with a family versus a patient. And sometimes they're in the firing, they're in the line of fire, trying to also look at the legalities and ethical considerations. Have you ever had an experience with maybe a concern the way the plan of care was going from the planning of? where the physician was leading it, maybe that didn't align necessarily where you thought the needs and wants and desires of the patient were being recognized?
0: Mm-hmm. I think that is a very common thing that occurs, probably more so in the ICU and emergency room settings. Once a patient comes home to the community setting and they're signed up with a hospice company, they're, we're working with the medical director of the hospice company that kind of guides that care So, fortunately, from the physician perspective, that's not dealt with so much in the community hospice end-of-life care setting. I think it's more facility-based. However, I will add that, you know, we have that that dilemma between patients and families. You know, the family is not ready for this, you know, this very, particularly with very fast cancer diagnoses, you know, if somebody's diagnosed with, stage four pancreatic cancer and they have maybe three months and this is all brand new to family you know and particularly if the patient is young that is a very difficult scenario the family is like we are going to fight 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 and sometimes patients just know you know they have the sixth sense of this isn't going to work i'm not going to make it so One thing I learned over and over and over again as a hospice nurse is you don't have to tell people they're dying. It is not a secret. They know. They may not be telling their family, but they know. So it's a lot of conversation. It's a lot of relying on the interdisciplinary team to bring in the chaplain and the social worker to get everybody talking and all the cards on the table. And to have some honest and sometimes very hard conversations about, what's going to happen and how it's going to look like based on the decisions that are made.
1: That's so, that is such great points. I actually came from a social service background and was in that role. When this experience happened, I actually had a patient who had very specific wishes. Mm-hmm. And the family, I based on exactly what you said, not do, dealing very well with this kind of not in an agreement with maybe what, I mean, I should say actually was what the patient wanted. And mm-hmm. so I remember this situation was the patient did not want nutritional supplement or, or anything as far as a feeding tube yes. and come to find out the physician actually did insert and was very, very, like I said, my social service background kicked in and actually questioned the physician and his reply to me was, "I'm more concerned with the living than the dead," and it's a, it's, it's a shame, but so many of them are faced with that because we are a very sue happy country, and you know, I think sometimes the doctors are put in a very bad position, and you know, they don't have the magic wand of knowing if it's definitive that you know the patient is going to die in certain circumstances or whether other things might be warranted. So I think it's a very difficult position for all of us in healthcare. But that is. was
0: just. I'm sorry.
1: No, no, please.
0: I was just going to say, you know, along the lines of what the physician said about he's more interested in the living than the dead, one other thing that we have to balance as nurses and social workers and, and the whole interdisciplinary team is when there's that short timeline and a family member is having to make decisions based on treatment. So if the patient is you know, non-responsive and the family's making the decisions, the family has to make a decision that they have to live with for the rest of their life. And we have to honor that too. So yes. may, they may make a decision that we don't think is best right now, but sometimes we have to let them make that decision and see a little bit of the outcome so that they can make a
1: better decision. Exactly. Thank you for that. Dr. Thompson, also kind of going along those lines, have you ever had a specific ethical issue that you had to deal with in your practice surrounding these topics?
0: Yes, it was ethical as well as legal. Probably the biggest issue that I dealt with that probably taught me the most was diversion of narcotics out of the home. And that was, probably happened more than once, but the time that I noticed it immediately, the first thing was the patient, of course geriatric patients, sweet little old lady, was on Darvacet, which is not recommended for geriatric populations. They should not be taking Darvacet. And so my first visit to the home, I was like, oh, you're on Darvacet, that's not a good idea. <laughs> Let's talk about that. And a family member in the home was immediately reactive to you are not taking her Darvocet away. And so I was like, okay. So I backed off a little bit, had a conversation with medical director. You know, we are kind of working on a plan. You know, on the backside to try to move her off a of Darvocet, but let the family think we're just going to leave it for now. As probably a few months went by they were requesting, the number of pills they were requesting were just astronomical and they did not correlate to her pain complaints when I would see her. Every time I would see her, you know, I would ask her about her pain and it would be almost nothing. And I would ask her, when was the last time you took a pain pill? Oh, I took one yesterday, I think. Well, the number of pills being requested would indicate she's taking like 10 a day. And so I knew wow. immediately, you know, so these pills are going yes. somewhere. Somewhere else. Yeah. So that was probably the biggest thing I had to deal with, and how that kind of came played out was you know, I call I call I relied on my interdisciplinary team again. Um, you know, I called in the social worker and the chaplain. We had a family meeting and said, "This is what we're seeing." We just laid out the objective things we saw and said, "There's." We don't know what's going on. We don't know where these pills are going. We just know we're supplying more than what is needed, and we're not going to do that anymore. And so we signed a contract with the patient and the family. And the next day, the family found a new hospice company. <laughs> so, <laughs> so sometimes things work themselves out. But you know, if you if you know um, something is wrong, then you just listen to it and follow the process. And
1: and that certainly goes back to the importance of assessment in this yes. in this situation and in the situation you encounter. Like you said, the flags and the bells were going off. You knew something was amiss. And that's where the assessment comes in and following up with the appropriate disciplines to further investigate.
0: Exactly. So, Again, um, those assessment findings, they validate what you think. So without that, everything hinges on your assessment.
1: Exactly. So... I know that we talk about, we, you know, there is one parameter where we look at this end of life and palliative care and we talk from at the hospice uh, arena, but however, across the profession as a whole, you can, exp- you can encounter end of life and, and palliative uh, treatment and care. Yeah. And so when we talk about Chamberlain care and we talk about as our profession as a whole, That can be very taxing to us emotionally, physically, spiritually. We encounter those times where maybe we feel the support wasn't right. And again, it can be very taxing to us. So how can we provide self-care and support during these times?
0: So when we talk about self-care for ourselves, this really requires a lot of self-reflection to know what fills your cup. What recharges your battery? Where are safe places to relieve your stress that don't have you self-medicating, that don't have you um, using maladaptive techniques? So yes, we may have a um, coping mechanism that we know we've had a long, stressful, hard day. I need to go do whatever. Is that good for you long term? That's the first question to ask. If that is not good for you long term, you've got to find something else. And when you're working in an environment, anywhere nursing is taxing, whether it's end of life or rehab or wherever, it's just emotionally draining. So you've got to con- you have got to have a way to constantly check your gauge. You know, where's, where's your gas tank? Are you on full? Are you a quarter of a tank? Like, where are you at? Because we all have families and we have people outside of our patients that need us and we've got to have energy left in the tank. So, first you've got you've got to know how to check your gauge. Like for instance, I'm a very creative person and I know if I get to a point where I have no desire to create, whether it be a craft project or you know just whatever, I'm far past my stress level. So that's one of my personal gauges that I can use and it's just going to be different for everybody. So you have to know yourself and you have to know what is it that recharges your tank? recharges your battery, rather. Yes.
1: And so, as we provide care and think about it, not only for ourselves, but for others, what might be some assessment findings you would see in someone that might indicate that low level of self-care?
0: Yeah, we want to look for these, and we want to look for these in our patients' caregivers, too. You know, we're, we're caring for patients, but they're attached to people. So, you're a real good person to be keeping an eye on them too and so, so some of those assessment findings that you're gonna see are a change in their demeanor you know we all know that person that we work with every day that they're usually the happy-go-lucky person then all of a sudden one day they're not so happy something's up with that person we usually know that pretty quickly if they're complaining of being tired all the time you see a change in their appetite they may have some angry outbursts towards other people or they may react to things they wouldn't normally react to. You know, there are a lot of depression type kind of symptoms that you see, loss of interests in things that they usually find enjoyable. So those are pretty good assessment findings that, that somebody's emotionally, mentally drained.
1: And have you ever had an encounter where you had to approach that and 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 maybe are there resources that you would suggest for them?
0: You know, I definitely saw that a lot in my experience as hospice, and I, I saw it a lot in the hospital, too. Um, you do definitely want to approach the family and just let them know what you're seeing. Again, be objective. Sometimes a lot of, especially, well, a lot of family, particularly family that are with patients in the hospital, they don't feel like they have time or resource to go do something else. And so trying to help them find a way to work that in or tap into another family member or friend that can come sit with the patient while they, you know, go get a manicure or just go to the grocery store by themselves. It usually doesn't take a whole lot to get a breather. When they're in the hospice environments, there's usually some respite care services that are available that will provide them a few days respite to catch their breath and take a break.
1: Those are some great suggestions. And so now, Dr. Thompson, I kind of just want to take it into advocating. And so, again, it can be a situation where it can be uncomfortable. It could be, you know, where you're looking at issues and not certain how to go about addressing them. So what are some valuable resources that any professional should refer to if they feel there might be an inconsistency with the end of life planning or care based on patient wishes?
0: always need to be aware of the resources within your organization wherever you work there's an interdisciplinary team if you're in a hospital there's usually an ethics committee if you're dealing with some ethical issues there there's people around you right down to the fellow nurses that you work with they know firsthand what you're dealing with and so sometimes they're a good resource to just have that vent about a patient situation and they may have some ideas for you too At the end of the day, you need to know what your patient wants and what they want their experience to look like. And then you need to assess them frequently to see where you are on that continuum. If things are progressing a little faster than you thought and there's some final wish or something that needs to be done, can it still be achieved? And then just be creative. Just think about what it might take, who else you might need to involve in making that happen. At the end of the day, you have to remember the best you can do is the best you can do. You're not going to make everything perfect. There are going to be situations that don't turn out like you want them to, but you've got to let things go at the end of the day of the best you can do is the best you can do. And if you did your best and you made it the best you could, then you were successful.
1: Absolutely. And so the final question is just kind of looking at advocating for patients in their planning and and looking at processes. How does the nurse best advocate? I know you mentioned some, but what are some real key factors here that just demonstrate you are, again, advocating? And and you can look at it and say, I know I'm doing my best.
0: You voiced your patient's wishes. You know what they want, you know what their goals are, and you are voicing those. To the people around that patient, to make sure that those things happen whenever possible. Occasionally, they want something unrealistic, but most of the time, they're realistic. Yes. <laughs> Just be their voice. That's the best way to advocate.
1: That is a wonderful segue to our ending. I so appreciate all of your information and sharing of your experiences, and the great ending of the, the paramount piece of advocating for your patient and hearing them and speaking for them, even at times when they can't. So I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Thompson, and sharing with us, again, your great experiences surrounding how to best support and assess in the palliative and end-of-life care processes.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Dr. Simpson.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Now that you've explored
0: some important concepts related to your modules, if you have not done so already, please turn your attention to the course materials in your online course for additional application and practice of these concepts.